And welcome once again to Father's Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason meet and sometimes collide. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here, Mother Angelica Way, where it all began in 1981, the mothership, as Father likes to call it. Email your very important questions to SpitzersUniversity, WTN.com, a big part of the program, of course. And check out all the Father Spitzer's websites, the Magic Center, One Purposeful Universe, and SpitzerCenter.org for ever-expanding material. And Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and the EW10 On Demand page on our website. And while you are there checking out our On Demand page, you'll see that there's other great features we have there. We recently uploaded a series of great spots called In a Pro-Life Minute. Dr. Steve and Gracie Christie present short, easy-to-use arguments to help you show life begins at conception and why abortion's not the way to go. See them free and on demand and tell your friends about them and show them to the people who have questions and concerns or are confused. But we're never confused here because we have Father Spitzer and his Father Spitzer's book is The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, which is now available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. That's kind of what we're going through. And another great book by a great thinker, the late great Father Benedict Groeschel, Father Benedict Answers Your Questions by, of course, Father Benedict from his wonderful show, which was Sunday Night Live and then Sunday Night Prime. Um, and of course, we still run episodes as well. And of course, speaking of Mr. Universe himself, we have our own Father Spitzer uh, joining us once again from the West Coast in our wonderful studios in California. Great to see you, Father. Uh, doing very well my, myself, and uh, also I know you are, uh, Doug, so I'll begin with a prayer. Thank In the you. name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of our ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you today to send your Holy Spirit down upon us, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Through Jesus our Lord, amen. amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, Father, we just came out of a Father's Day weekend, uh, and you're a father as right. well. Did, did you do anything special or any uh, for Father's Day? Well, I was actually had the honor of uh, marrying my wonderful nephew, oh. uh, Alex, to his bride, Tiffany. And uh, so I did a fatherly uh, function of uh, uh, being uh, the uh, uh, celebrant at that uh, ceremony and also um, um, participating with my entire family, uh, many of uh, whom are fathers, and uh, having a, a wonderful time with them. So it was great. great. Okay, sounds super. And of course, with Father's Day, uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, there was a couple of articles talking about it, one in the register, which had some great quotes about fathers. Uh, Pope Francis said, every family needs a father. Uh, Pope St. John Paul II, in revealing and reliving on earth the very fatherhood of God, man is called upon to ensure the harmonious and united development of all members of the family. He also said, love for his wife as mother of their children and love for the children themselves are for the man the natural way of understanding and fulfilling his own fatherhood. And a quote from Pope Benedict XVI, God is a father who never abandons his children, a loving father who supports, helps, welcomes, forgives, saves with a fidelity that immensely surpassing that of men opening up to an eternal dimension. So uh, reinforcing the importance of fatherhood, which has really been uh, kind of 
neglected of late, right? Absolutely, and um, I think uh, we've mentioned on this show many times those uh, interesting studies about how important uh, fathers are, not just to the emotional stability of young men, but of course uh, young women as well. The children um, uh, are uh, truly um, dependent upon the uh, uh, the um, approval, mm -hmm. the intimacy um, with the father, and uh, that matters a lot. Also, we've mentioned on the show that uh, fathers are integral to um, uh, future religious belief on the part of their children. So uh, if fathers um, uh, are going to mass and, and uh, you know, supporting uh, that, supporting religion, supporting religious values in the household, uh, the odds are really two and a half times higher uh, that the uh, children will uh, actually go to uh, mass themselves uh, in the future. There are other uh, factors, of course. The mother's participation is, is important, but the father's participation uh, in, in the mass and in religion is mm -hmm. really, really important. And then in terms of not just emotional stability and spiritual uh, religious uh, faith uh, in the present and in the future, also um, for the uh, male child, uh, to appropriate a respect for the law, a respect for civil society, um, really the father's influence, and this is so true in my own life, mm -hmm. is uh, really significant and important. So without these, uh, you know, the father present, you're going to have uh, real difficulties uh, emotionally, right. spiritually, civilly, culturally with the children, the next right. generation. And, and of course, uh, <laughs> Let's face facts. Father's around, the father's participating, the father spends t time with the children, the father has some form of emotional intimacy with the children. Let's face facts. Uh, that's going to make the child much, much happier, not just much more psychologically right. stable. Cool. I mean, happy family, happy children. What's wrong with that? But of course, if we're missing it, it's mm -hmm. not just that the family will begin to dissipate. The culture will dissipate with it and that, of course, is our challenge. Right, so, and that's what um, we're, we're seeing, uh, Yeah, really. we need to get oh, fathers right. involved. Yeah. Right, and you're prophetic Absolutely. as always, because I've got a, a story mm -hmm. about research. One in four U.S. children live in fatherless homes, sparring mental health and behavioral issues. And it goes on to say that an issue brief published by the American First Policy Institute finds clear correlation between children raised in fatherless homes and developmental challenges such as anger problems, violent tendencies, overall lower educational scores. Goes on to say that the U.S. Census Bureau data shows that as of 2022, more than 18 million children across the nation live in fatherless homes, okay? And it goes on yeah, to talk well, about, right, talks about the idea that some data, and this is kind of stuff that you've talked about before, suggests that 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes and that 85% of children who exhibit behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. Some data also suggests that children without fathers are also 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances. 71% of all children who abuse substances come from fatherless homes. In this study of 75 yeah. juvenile delinquents, 66% experienced fatherlessness, 20% had never lived with a father, and 25% more had an alcoholic father. Yeah, no, the facts speak for themselves. I couldn't possibly add uh, one more thing to that. Fathers are absolutely essential 
for not only emotional stability right. and for religious uh, practice, but definitely mm -hmm. uh, respect for the law, law-abiding. Yeah. And of course, the substance abuse problem, that's related to the emotional stability problem, yeah. the fundamental lack of unhappiness. You know, uh, drugs right. is the, the surrogate for that. So if you have a really healthy, happy family, stable fa fatherly presence, uh, the need for drugs is diminished right. by about 90%. So let me ask so, you, why, uh, then it just becomes recreational. Why, why, why is, has there been in your mind such an attack on, on, on the family in general, but the father specifically? Well, I, I think, you know, three things have happened. I think uh, a radical form of uh, feminism, which um, uh, basically um, said that a woman could not possibly be fulfilled uh, without some role in the uh, workplace, um, you know, ca caused a kind of a, a bifurcation uh, in, you know, uh, fatherhood, motherhood, um, you know, and their presence in the household. And that was kind of a first blow. And then, you know, the idea that, you know, divorce is okay, women can do it all, you know, if the, the divorce occurs, it won't be so bad. Mm -hmm. And I recall going all the way back uh, to the late 1970s when people were saying, well, you know, the divorce rate is kind of going up to 50%, you know, and they were making really naive observations and psychology today or whatever, you know, <laughs> saying that, you know, um, this is not gonna really harm the family, it's not gonna harm the children. Well, now the information is in. I mean, it floods of information. You, you want to really get your child uh, into an emotionally unstable condition. Divorce is a really good way to do it. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, instability is going to happen all the time. But divorce is not good for children. And, and, you know, then it wasn't just the justification of divorce. Then there was a deliberate marginalization of fatherhood as important. Now, how this happened or why it happened, I do not really understand the roots of it. I know that some of the roots were in academe, mm -hmm. and I was following this very, um, you know, in, in a very interested way in the 1980s, uh, looking at this going, this is going to be no good. This is going to definitely tell not only on the future of the family in the United States, but the future of our culture and its sustainability going forward without a strong family. And so I began to look at it and try to study. I'm not sure why that happened. Mm -hmm. Maybe it, uh, did it come out of the uh, women's movement, uh, yeah. a radical branch of the women's movement? I don't know. Did it come out of a kind of anti-family attack uh, that was uh, more or less pinned onto uh, when Nayral kind of took up, you know, as it were, the uh, quote-unquote orthodoxy mm -hmm. of the radical women's movement, right? And NARAL, right, remember, that's the National Abortion Rights uh, Action League. Uh, when that group kind of became a, a mainstream, almost orthodox influence within, uh, you know, a, a radical wing of the feminist movement, then, you know, basically, uh, fatherlessness was mm -hmm. almost a badge uh, in some way. The idea of marginalizing uh, the male uh, became sort of a, an, another sort of cultic outgrowth of, you know, uh, that branch of, mm -hmm. of the women's movement. 
whether or not the media took it up consciously or unconsciously, I don't know. But uh, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV. Mm -hmm. But what I, you know, when I go home and you know my nieces and nephews or something are watching something, I I just hang out and watch mm -hmm. uh, because I, I want to be an observer mm -hmm. of what's going on. But there's definitely the man as the clown right. motif was coming into the media. Mm -hmm. And you'd see, uh, I forget what it was, you know, uh, they had that uh, uh, marriage uh, program, you know, that uh, uh, spoofed uh, marriage. Um, Married um, with Children? Uh, not all in the family, program but it was, or something? Married uh, yeah, with for, Children or something? Uh, something. Yeah, Married with Children, that's right, it. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So I saw this thing and I just said, Oh, you know, this, you know, a man as the fool, man as the clown, you know, and, and it was very clear uh, what the image was meant to portray. Mm -hmm. And then this kept happening uh, till the point where you began to see that there was a superfluousness uh, about men within the family. Now, this directly contravened good sociological data that was showing what we just talked about. Men are really necessary for emotional stability in the family, really are necessary for the strength of the family, mm -hmm. really are necessary for uh, the educational background, really are super necessary for religious practice, and, mo and just as importantly, moral practice within the family. And so you can see that all of a sudden you've got this divergence in it within the culture where you have the, the, the media poking fun at men who are now supposed to uh, you know sort of become you know the, the, the class clowns you know the, uh, the, the, the family mm -hmm. clowns uh, they don't have a role of importance the real stabilizing influence is the woman no question mothers are Absolutely. Absolutely super important in a family, but the, the fact that you had to marginalize men uh, to uh, uh, bring women into a greater import within the family as they're moving out of the family into the workplace, mm -hmm. the whole thing spelled disaster. And that right. goes back to the 80s, right. but the trends have continued. Right. And so now today uh, you can yeah. see the results. Uh, it's not just the fact that the divorce is so prevalent. The number of fatherless uh, families uh, is really right. prevalent. And I don't have to tell you what cohabitation did to just smash that home because, of course, cohabitation relationships are uh, only about 20% uh, uh, successful for long-term uh, relationships. Marriage is, uh, you know, marriage much, much, much more successful, five times more successful, uh, you know, for a long-term relationship. And furthermore, um, anybody who moves, the longer you cohabitate, right, the, m the more likely you will ha uh, have the chance of, of getting a divorce, of being dissatisfied in the marriage, and of course terminating the marriage at an early point. So, I mean, this doesn't help anything and now you've got almost a trifecta going on. The media is still pounding away at the, the right. useless male image as we're just catapulting right. downwards, if I may use the right. reverse image Absolutely. there. I mean, we're going down as fast as we can possibly accelerate. And then and on top of all of that, you know, you've got now the, 
you know, the divorce rate is skyrocketing, cohabitation contributing to it. Cohabitation, of course, undermines religion. I mean, direct correlation. The longer you cohabitate, the less likely right. you are to practice religion. Yet religion is the, the most marriages. important right. factor. Right. For, yeah, yeah, yeah well, exactly, all of it. So. Well, they, I remember the line yeah. I think they used to say in the radical days was, uh, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. I think that was the line they used to Yeah, yeah, I heard many, that one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I do, along with many other very disdainful lines, but now we're going to pay the price for it right. because uh, a lot of these people have, a lot of these men have broken off from their families. They feel guiltless about it. Mm -hmm. They've broken off from their children. They feel guiltless about it. And now the statistics are coming out. You just read them all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it, this is a crowning uh, achievement of the culture, yet another crowning achievement of our great secular culture, mm -hmm. which of course is just blasting the family, blasting the children of the broken up families, and blasting the religious principles and values, as well as the moral principles and values that underpin stable, emotional, spiritual, relational, and marital um, um, uh, uh, relationships right. and, and health for years and years and years. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a disaster area, right. you know, and, and we're just all looking at it, you know, trying to pretend like the elephant is not in the room. Right, right. We just need a radical change in the culture. We need to get back to church. We need to get back to some real morals. We need to re-embrace fatherhood. We need to re-embrace, uh, you know, maleness right. as having a value. And, and so, uh, I mean, these are not hard principles to embrace. And now the statistics prove all of it. You know, what are we waiting for? Uh, right. Just till the culture disintegrates before our very right. eyes well. and we can see it back and can, well, what, what happened? You think you we're know? just caught in, a, in just this ideological divide, but you, you, you know, when a person becomes an ideologue, it doesn't matter what the reality is. If it runs contrary to what they already believe, they dismiss it out of hand. Yeah, no, that's, that's very, very true. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, uh, you know, um, we do have an ideological society. Mm -hmm. We, um, um, you know, you got to buy the whole package mm -hmm. or else you're a heretic. That's right. You know, in the secular sense of the word. Right. And so, you know, the pressure is on. You either conform to the whole package or, uh, or uh, we, we're going to ostracize you from belonging to the cool yeah, and in gang. Yeah, a lot of uh, yeah. uh, authoritarian governments have that almost done that quite well over the years. Uh, the other thing oh, I was, yeah. you know, uh, another thing, I mean, this is some good news, and obviously with the Dobbs decision about a year or so oh, ago, uh, we, the new study yeah. shows that abortion bans have saved about, they, th they say about a net 25,000 babies since Dobbs' decision, uh, you know, f f uh, yeah. at least based on the statistics from That's 538. Terrific. And uh, so those who, uh, you know, supported that and, and over the years, uh, you say, helped to save 25,000 lives. Uh, for other people who voted mm -hmm. so that the people could go across state lines and have the abortion there, they can uh, think about what their vote did uh, for the babies who didn't make it yeah. or who could have been saved. Absolutely, and I, I do think it's, uh, you, know, um, you know, people will, uh, you know, continue to resist this or try to promote chemical abortions, but the fact is the Dobbs decision has saved lives 
and I think it's wonderful. And 25,000 lives is a lot of lives. Mm -hmm. I just remember when we got those statistics about the Vietnam War, and we just said, wow, 50,000 lives lost, you know, and, uh, you know, all the protests that were mm -hmm. uh, going on about it and so forth and so on. Well, in just, uh, you know, a little, um, uh, you know, less than a year, we've got 25,000 lives saved. I'm figuring, well, two years, we've got uh, 50,000 lives saved. Well, there's the whole Vietnam War right, right there. Right. And, of course, uh, I, I just, you know, when you look at all these children that are going to come out of this, the children that would have never survived had Dobbs not um, happened, I think we should just right. get out there and profile all these kids and all the good things they're doing and all the things they mean to their families and to their brothers and their sisters, you know, and all the, the you know, the, the mm -hmm. convenience philosophy got trumped and was put, you know, back in the back seat for just a moment in the Dobbs decision. And instead, a self-sacrificial loving mm -hmm. uh, philosophy went to the front seat. And, and so long as it remains in the front, if we actually, you know, profile the lives of these kids, I, I just think, you know, who's going to be in favor of abortion in the future? Mm -hmm. These are good kids. They're creative kids. They're joy-filled kids. Right. They're kids that are going to make a difference. And if we give them the right values, having some fatherhood in the family as well as good motherhood, mm -hmm. of course, this is going to make a huge difference. Right. Uh, one last thing before we get to some questions. Uh, the bishops had their, uh, uh, their uh, summer meeting just the last week or so. And yep. um, the ethical and religious directives. Uh, the Bishops Committee on Doctrine will begin the process of updating a portion of ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care service to reflect its March doctrinal note that emphasized that Catholic health care services must not perform interventions, whether surgical or chemical, that aim to transform the sexual characteristics of a human body into those of the opposite sex or take part in the development of such procedures. So at least we're happy that. There's a, they're reinforcing yeah. that original statement. Well, we're, we're going to become uh, one of the best medical ethics uh, uh, hospital systems around because of it. Because as we, as is becoming clearer and clearer, not just in Great Britain and Sweden and Finland, mm -hmm. but all over the world, if you begin this process of gender-affirming therapy, just expect the following three things to happen. A 20 times uh, increase in suicides if they move to sexual reassignment surgery, a three times increase in mortality rates for all reasons, uh, not um, um, including a sexual reassignment surgery, just gender-affirming therapy, and overall, just a rate of depression and anxiety that's going to increase in the neighborhood of five times, uh, you know, when all these things happen. You know, people still continue to publish this nonsense mm -hmm. that says that, uh, after, you know, trans, we're, we're promoting um, a trans, um, um, a gender affirming therapy and, and sexual reassignment surgery because we know that it's going to make those uh, pr people happy. That, that is just dead wrong. It is wrong in every longitudinal survey. This is like, 
you know, really short-term, ask a subjective question to somebody uh, six months after they've had a surgery or six months after they've begun gender-affirming therapy, of course they're going to say, I'm really, really happy. Mm -hmm. But ask them five years later mm -hmm. when the mortality rate, the depression and anxiety rate, the suicidal contemplation rate, and the suicide rate are just skyrocketing through the ceilings. This is what Great Britain, Finland, and Sweden are saying. They're just simply saying, Five. it's intolerable. The risks far outweigh the benefits. What are we talking about? And here we've got these, these idiot surveys that come up with nonsense like this and try and promote this stuff. I mean, at least the Catholic Church is standing up for what it, first of all, is real ontologically mm -hmm. and, and what is decent morally. But at, at the end of the day, we're talking medical ethics here. How can anybody be promoting a strategy which will inevitably lead to a 20 times increase in suicide rates, a three times increase in mortality rates, and a five times increase in depression and anxiety rates? Why? Why? After a long term, after right. five years, why? Why would you be doing this? And that is the question that I think all of these great politicians, these enlightened souls, need to be answering. They need to face the real statistics. Good, hard surveys, right? You're not talking about an opinion poll here. Mm -hmm. A suicide is a hard fact. Uh, a, mortal a death, a mortality, uh, you know, is, is, is a hard fact. And people, you know, who have long-term depression and anxiety, that's a hard fact that's easily provable and diagnosable right. and, and sh you know at the end of the day this is the, the what we have to address and I think the Catholic Church ought to be proud and its right. healthcare systems ought to be proud to reinforce uh, good medical practice good medical ethics as well as good religious and moral practice that's what happens when the Hippocratic Oath goes out the window here's, a, here's our first question yep. here dear Father Spitzer when you were discussing AI, a point was missed. I understand your conclusion about AI becoming sentient, but of greater concern is who is programming them. I believe that is where is more to the heart of the issue. Whoever writes the program will approach it with their own biases. William. Abs, uh, William, you are so right. This is, uh, if I missed that, mm -hmm. um, as they say, shame on me, because of course, programmer bias is one of the biggest, uh, you know, complaints not only about you know the the big uh, um, search engines like Google and, and, and Yahoo, etc., right? But of course, it's also the big problem with anything like chat. Uh, um, well, not um, simply that, any uh, program uh, that purports to do um, searches or composite, you know, uh, uh, categorization mm -hmm. or composite uh, writing of, uh, you know, and, and synthetic uh, writing of data uh, taken from all of these uh, searches. And so you look at these things and you say, oh, it's ChatGPT, it's everything. Uh, the programmer is the essential person. The person who can put the bias into the algorithm, he or she is the essential person. Or the programmers that actually can determine the long-term bias uh, in uh, putting together data or, you know, as they say, far more errors of omission than commission. The person who gets to determine 
um, the uh, the omissions that are going to happen in the, the data search and the data synthesis, mm -hmm. that person is almost as as it were an information uh, with a small g god, mm -hmm. right? He's the czar. She's the czarina of this um, um, of this uh, new. Um, way of really controlling mm -hmm. um, uh, not only the culture but controlling the ethos within the culture, our collective subjectivity, our collective sense of values and and and, and virtues and vices, our collective uh, sense of heroes and villains, our collective sense of what rationality is really constituted by. Uh, yeah, there's a big evil genie a genie out there, and and it's the programmer. And you are right, William. Uh, shame on me. I, I should have absolutely uh, put that in, and uh, no least, question about it. At least you knew it was AI and not A1 sauce. When I first read it, I wasn't sure what I was looking at. <laughs> Probably because I had a steak for Father's Day or something. Uh, here's, another question. <laughs> here's another question we've got coming up just before the break. Maybe we can get it started. Dear Father Spitzer, I'm a huge fan. I love your show. I love the dynamics between you and Doug. Uh, my mom did yoga, so you, this question you're going to realize, no matter how you answer it, you're going to be in trouble. My mom did yoga when yeah. I was young, and I was taught it at a young age for the health benefits, quote-unquote, stretching, etc. I heard that the church said yoga could invite evil through the practice. My version is a watered-down Western version focusing solely on the psychological, physiological, I should say, benefits. If I devote my yoga practice to Jesus as a form of taking care of myself so I have energy to carry out my vocation, am I committing a sin? No, you're not committing a sin. I mean, there, you know, it's the way you, you, you're absolutely correct. Uh, um, uh, I forgot what your name is. Brooke. Brooke. Uh, but you're absolutely correct, uh, Brooke. You're absolutely correct about that. It's the way you do it. If you're devoting it to Jesus, if you're just doing stretching exercise, if you're not divining things, mm -hmm. if you're not using, uh, you know, um, uh, forms or expressions that have a spiritual uh, a dimension to it or could even have a cultic a spiritual dimension to it I think it's 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 nothing more than exercise to be honest with you and that exercise devoted to God mm -hmm. I think is perfectly fine I I just um, you know if, of course if you're if you're using expressions or you're uh, you, you know somehow trying to invoke some kind of a uh, of a, a deity or some right. kind of get into a spiritual uh, dimension or wave through the yoga or trying to affect a, a specific mental or spiritual uh, uh, dimension as you're doing the yoga mm -hmm. and it's not merely sh physical stretching yeah there might be a problem with that for sure but if that's not part of your right. practice uh, I, I just Brooke I've probably said it several times in this show I I don't think it's it's that problematic I mm -hmm. I really don't and um, um, you know, I, uh, you know, any more than I think, you know, people who, you know, do the the form of Chinese exercises in in, in the morning, like tai chi you know, or, or something like um, that. I'm tai chi, right. you know, et cetera. I, I don't think. Right. As long as you're careful. You know, of and, course, and, you can and, have a religious right, dimension. Right. Yeah. And you just got to stay away from that. With that, yeah. we're going to take a break. Much more yeah. with Father Spitzer <laughs> as we continue. Stay with us.
And we do appreciate you staying with us here for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. Don't forget EWTN's family celebration, Saturday, August 26th in Birmingham. Speakers include Father Wade Manises, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, Jim and Joy will be there. Many of the EWTN personalities, Father Mitch, Mass with our Bishop, Stephen Reka, uh, who just put out a, a letter to all the parishes inviting people to come. So we appreciate his support for EWTN. More information and registration information at EWTN.com forward slash family celebration. It's free. It's free. And so you should go because it certainly is free. And we turn now to Father Spitzer, uh, and we go to another question. Dear Father Spitzer, Satan supposedly told a saint that a poorly prayed rosary was offensive to Our Lady and was like offering her a bouquet of wilted flowers. Saint Thomas Aquinas said distracted prayer was better than was better than no prayer. Uh, or maybe he said it wasn't better than no prayer. I get very distracted whenever I pray the rosary. Do I offend Mary because so many other thoughts come into my mind when I pray? Is the Lord offended when I get distracted at Mass? Greg, I, I certainly hope not, Greg, or we're all in trouble. So, uh. yeah, yeah, Greg, <laughs> believe me, the answer to that is no. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you, when you take out that rosary and you're trying your best, you know, to to not get distracted, and we're all going to get distracted, but when you're trying your best to, to focus on Our Lady, uh, she is very pleased with it. You're mm -hmm. consecrating your time to her, to her Son, and to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. That consecration of your time in prayer always pays off. And I'll tell you something, you've got to look at the positive side of saying that rosary. So let's suppose out of the 50 Hail Marys, you connected with Our Lady when you, you, you kind of knew she was looking at you and um, was you know very pleased with your uh, saying that Hail Mary. You connected with her uh, when you were saying only for 20 of those Hail Marys. Boy, was St. Thomas Aquinas right. I, I, I can tell you this right now um, mm. that uh, uh, you know, it's much better to be doing that than no prayer. Right, right. And, you know, St. Teresa of Avila right. uh, sums it all up. She says, uh, you know, um, a man can be, you know, praying and sinning at the same time, but it won't last long. Eventually, he'll have to give up one of them. Mm -hmm. And so prayer is an antidote to sin. So even if you connect with Our Lady only 20 times and you get a sense of her presence, a sense of her love, enough to say thank you so much for everything, for all protecting me, my good mother and lady, and thank you so much for all the ways in which you have opened doors of opportunity and my apologies, I'm so sorry for the things where I kind of offend you in my life with my sin. And you just connect only 20 times. You know, if you get those five movements mm -hmm. in there when you connect, right? You, you know she's present. You know she loves you. You love her back. You thank her for what she's done. And you're sorry for um, the times mm -hmm. when you have offended God through your sin. If you get those five movements in, even if it's only five times out of 50, great. Mm -hmm. That is just that much more impact against sin. Mm -hmm. And so you've got that strong relationship there. And the idea of focusing on the negative 
I used to call that Satan appearing, I don't call it that, mm -hmm. St. Ignatius calls it a Satan appearing as an angel of light. So he's going to say to you, <laughs> see, you're praying. And now that prayer is very distracted. Better you should just give right. up the whole thing because I'm very disappointed at your failure to pray perfectly. That doesn't sound right mm -hmm. at all. As a matter of fact, it sounds like Satan appearing as an angel of light to stop you from praying. The best thing to do is look at the positivity of your prayer, not the negativity of the way you did your prayer. The positivity is you get those five movements somehow, some way into your prayer, right? If you get it in there, I'm telling you, you're going to be more shielded from sin. You're going to be more shielded from Satan. You're definitely going to be more connected with God. You'll grow in intimacy with him, and that makes all the difference. It transforms the quality of all the work you do. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, um, uh, right. that's the way I look at it. And boy, I've, I haven't said a perfect rosary ever, right. ever. I mean, sometimes when I'm in a state of spiritual consolation, I can definitely have a much better rosary than other times. Right. But, you know, I'm lucky if I make those five movements, um, you know, maybe mm -hmm. with 25, half of the Hail Marys and uh, half of the Our Fathers uh, in the rosary. Um, and um, I'm not perfect. Right. I won't be perfect. Uh, not even five minutes after I'm six right. feet under, but maybe after some right. time in purgatory, I'll be able to do it pretty well. well so uh, anyway, um, uh, I'm me. thinking uh, you're right. right on the marker. Right. And I thought what you said was exactly right. You know, it sounds like Satan trying to mislead somebody. Uh, of course. Yeah. And I always think when you just said that Father Benedict Rochelle, his, his book Answers Your Questions, which is our book for this m month, always said, mm -hmm. if you find a perfect church, run. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. Boy, that old sage, I loved him. Yeah, right, exactly. So, with <laughs> he was that. Right on the marker. Well, we, uh, with you as our new sage here, we're going to move over to, the, to your book and your uh, purpose and perspective and yeah. method of this volume. Uh, and you say the purpose of this volume, if we had but a glimmer of the truly overwhelming love of the Lord for us and the great peril intended for us by our spiritual enemy, Satan, the evil one, we would not hesitate to seek, accept, and follow the whole moral truth to us, given to us by Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church. And you say, why don't we? And now I'm assuming that's in the entire entity of this book, but could you summarize why that happens? Yeah. Well, there's two things that happen that get in the way of, of really experiencing the full love of God. The first and most important one is, of course, our egos. And, uh, and ego, you can't believe how, you know, you know, powerful it can be in distracting us and bringing all the kinds of recognition of God's love, which requires, honestly, real generosity and a real sense of thankful gratitude, thankful, um, thankfulness mm -hmm. to the Lord. And if you don't have that there, what winds up happening and is you during the middle of your prayer, you can go back to all these ego things mm -hmm. and look at all the deadly sins that are ego driven, right? The anger um, sin, the greed mm -hmm. sin, the vanity sin, the pride sin, the envy sin, 
All those are ego-driven um, deadly sins. Yes, there are sensual ones like, uh, you know, gluttony and, and lust um, and sloth, but the other ones, and sloth can also be an ego-driven thing too, but the main thing is the majority are egotistical uh, deadly sins. So when you think about it, the number one distraction is until we can purge ourselves of that ego, until we can not only put it in a holster, but just, you know, take it and, and um, you know, lock it in a safe mm -hmm. somewhere and, and uh, be in contact with God straight on, we won't recognize the full love of God for us because mm -hmm. there's always going to be some interference, surely is the case in my own life. The second thing that goes on is mm -hmm. the devil seizes upon every single egotistical and sensual entryway he can. So if he can get you to an egotistical excess or to a sensual excess, he will because he knows it will distract us from the love of God. He knows that it will get us into some mode of ingratitude rather than gratitude, some mode of wanting to give ourselves generously uh, to God and, you know, hold everything back and keep it all for ourselves and get the competition out of here and elbow them away. But the point is he's, of course, standing by at your elbow waiting for that first little sensual or egotistical excess, and then zoom, he uh, takes advantage of it. And if he can do it during prayer, all the better, mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, that's the time you're more likely to discover God's love for you. Or in the aftermath of prayer, you can discover God's love for you. He's got to make sure that you are adequately distracted, adequately moving in the wrong direction. And so uh, you put those two factors together, and boy, does that sort of really inhibit our awareness of God's love. But actually, if, you know, like with the mystics, right, mm -hmm. you can see how um, they work. And God purges them through these dark nights. And as it, nobody likes to go through a dark night, uh, very painful, very empty, very lonely, very uh, alienating. You feel like, where's God? But when you come out of the dark night and you're still as convinced as you ever were, not only about God, but God's love and that God's um, uh, moral uh, uh, teaching and God's spiritual teaching is the way out of the darkness, then I'm telling you, you're less and less dependent on the consolation, more and more um, aware of God's generous love in and of itself, and you, with, with or without the mm -hmm. consolation, you're going to move forward. Ah, the devil now is just, you know, his power is taken away from him, right? If he can't move you by sensuality or ego, if that's purged in the dark night, holy mackerel, he's powerless. There's nothing he can do. And then, as St. Teresa says, once you're in that state, I was, she said, I, I, I was walking around as if I, I, I were in a stupor. Mm -hmm. You know, people would look at me and I was just, they wouldn't connect with anybody because I was in a state of ecstasy. Mm -hmm. I was so filled with joy. I could not take my eyes off of the beloved. Mm -hmm. And she, when she, you can hear that word beloved, the way she's saying it, even though you're reading it in a text, right, you can 
definitely hear how she's saying it. It's filled with affection and filled with trust and filled with deep gratitude and love. It's all there built into every time she uses that word. Count the number of beloveds she's using in her autobiography. It's just innumerable. And so when you look at this and you kind of feel that sense of how she's saying it and her closeness to God, boy, she's been through some serious dark nights, which she talks about in Interior Castle. Mm -hmm. She doesn't call it necessarily the dark night, but um, that's St. John of the Cross's uh, word, uh, for, uh, words for it. But she basically uh, has those moments as you're moving through the mansions in Interior Castle. And you know she's mm -hmm. been through them herself. But boy, it was worth it because, as she says, uh, uh, when God comes to you with that love, uh, he's got your full attention. It's <laughs> not just your uh, will. He's got your intellect. He's got your imagination. I mean, you are so fixated in joy, so fixated in him, so fixated in his love, so fixated in your completeness through him, your fulfillment through him, your, you know, this, this kind of complete mm -hmm. groundedness in him. The moment you got that, as she says, I was in a stupor. I, I, I was in such ecstasy, I, I, I could barely, I couldn't concentrate mm -hmm. on anything in this world. All I wanted was him, him, him. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, referred to God. Okay. And so you can pretty much uh, get the point that's uh, all worth it in the end. Now, but now, um, right. now, boy, you... if we knew, as she knew the love right. of God, you would just be stunned right. and you would never hesitate again to follow the moral teaching of Jesus. Now You, you say, know that it's all right. leading away from ego and sensuality. Right, right. Now you said the Lord in allowing us to be free delays the full revelation of his love and the darkness of our enemy until we freely choose his way rather than the enemies. Well, why wouldn't he reveal everything up front and let, let us choose? Because at the end of the day, right, if, you, uh, uh, if God gives us this big gift, right, and uh, we don't have the, what might be called the indifference, mm -hmm. right, the capacity to accept it, right, we have what's called screening capacities, a reticular activating system. And so you screen out what you don't want to see unconsciously, right? Mm -hmm. So the reticular activating system, it won't take data that it, it just w doesn't want to see unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to go through these stages so that you can be truly free to say, yes, I want your love. I just don't want your consolation. Mm -hmm. I want to be in you. I want to be with you. I want to just be in such an empathy with the way you look at things, see things, feel things, are things, right? I, I want to be in such an empathetic relationship with you in everything you are and who you are that I want your teaching and I want it fully. So God's got to, you know, um, he's got to go through our reticular activating system, right? He, he has to, uh, you know, kind of expose us to the teaching um, and, you know, we look at that teaching, but we've got all these screens up. And you say, I don't want that teaching. Oh, uh, if I take that teaching on sex, you know, well, then I can't have uh, all the sex I want. Or if I take that teaching on greed, well, I can't have 
all the stuff I want. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, if I take this teaching on anger, well, then I can't go and, um, you know, punch out the guy next door for offending me. Mm -hmm. If I take it and so forth and so on. So, but you don't say that in yourself. Your unconscious mind, though, feels these things. Mm -hmm. And it looks at that teaching and it just goes, I'm not accepting that data. You might remember the old uh, trick psychology film that they have uh, where they say, you know, okay, uh, now pick out, um, you know, uh, how many white players there are on the court. And of course, uh, the person is now focused on uh, looking for the white players on the, uh, the, with the white uniforms on the court. Mm -hmm. Then, okay, pick out the people with the blue uniforms on the court as they pick out the blue uniforms on the car. Then afterwards you say, okay, how many uh, saw five uh, white uniforms? How many saw five blue uniforms, et cetera? And then finally, did anybody see the ape that came across the screen there? Mm -hmm. And people go, well, there was no ape. Uh, there, 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 there was no ape that came across the screen. And they said, oh, yes, yes, there really was. Okay, now take a look at the same film again. So you play the film again, and you're now not looking for white uniforms or blue uniform. Mm -hmm. You're actually looking straight on at the thing. And here comes, no kidding, a person in an ape con uh, okay. costume and comes out, you know, and bows uh, in front of everybody and goes off the screen. It's as evident as can be but your reticular activating system didn't want to see it. Mm. So God, you know, he created us. He knows we've got this unconscious screening system, uh, you know, that when we focus on something, uh, we screen out other things. So or it? when we focus on what we don't want, we don't let the data in. And so the, he's got to do that. So he yeah. basically says, okay, okay, here's my teaching. What do you think? And of course, people will go, I don't want that teaching, gotcha. you know, and... Mm. Uh, or I find that teaching hard. That's a much better response. Yeah. If you say, if you can admit, I find that teaching hard, but maybe if the Lord wants me to do it, I'm going to do it. Kind of what the That's apostles a good said, response. Right? It's a hard teaching. But yep. Yeah, what else are we going to do? It's a hard teaching. You sure, was that, was that but, no, Noam Chimsky, maybe, who was used in that? Maybe wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, you're crazy. Right? You never know. Where do these images come from? <laughs> you know, I'm uh, sure, so I'm anyway. sure Neil Jimsky played a part in it. <laughs> well, uh, you also say we might ask why, imagination would, why, why would we choose our enemy's way? Quite simply, we might think that the enemy's way is the path to true happiness, our heart's desire, our treasure. Do you think more people think that today than they used to? Oh, yeah, I do, because I think, you know, we have been convinced uh, by a sexual ideology, uh, which, first of all, I'm not blaming just sex. I mean, greed, and especially the vanity ideology. I mean, you just take those three things, the lust, the greed, the vanity, just for starters. And you look at that and what's going on. We are convinced true happiness. You know, I mean, the culture, you look at these sitcoms, you look at all these things, and you can see as you're watching them, you can see very definitely the program is, here's your true happiness. If you had a little bit more sex, you'd be happy. If you had more material possessions and a bigger car and a bigger house, you'd be happier. 
if you just were able to have a little more ego comparative advantage with a little you know better looks quick get some more plastic surgery quick you know get um, uh, you know back to the gym uh, etc if you just had a little more of this and that a little more intelligence and a little bit more wit and so forth and so on why you would be absolutely happy if you had a little bit more power and a little bit more popularity and prestige why you would be really really happy and that is the message get more level two get more level one you know a level one is like material and pleasure happiness uh, level two is ego comparative happiness why you'll be the happiest person in the whole world except for now that we've got these 200 percent increases over uh, both before COVID and now COVID added right when you see 200 percent increases in suicide rates among young girls and about 140 percent increase and in, uh, suicide rates among young men and, and uh, concomitant depression, anxiety uh, rates among both men and women, et cetera, going forward. You see all these things and you say, hmm, let's see now. Um, I wonder if that's really making them happy, uh, that getting the best Instagram uh, post and the best uh, uh, Facebook selfie, uh, if that's really making them happy, if greater ego comparative advantage is really making them happy, of course it doesn't make you happy. Of course it leaves you feeling empty. Of course there's nothing to it. It's pure vapidness and in its worst dark form. Of course it won't make you any happier but they don't know it and they're going after it like that cultural maxim you know this great you know uh, uh, you know adage promoted by you know the secular um, uh, media um, this is really good uh, defining true happiness the more they go after it the more they're disappointed by it the more they think their life is pointless I've done everything right I got the best selfie. I got the best, you know, school. I got into the uh, best, uh, uh, you know, production. I have the most trips, but I'm not happy because, of course, it won't bring you happiness. Augustine said it perfectly a long time ago. For thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. In other words, we're made for being with God, and God alone, God made us for him to be in relationship with him as our perfect ground, our perfect fulfillment, our perfect dignity, our perfect meaning in life, our perfect home. He is our perfect home. We're made for perfect truth and perfect love and perfect goodness and perfect um, uh, beauty. And only all, all of that can only come from God. He made us for, if we don't have religion, if we don't have a path to that perfection, we'll never be be happy, said Augustine. If we're not connected with God, if we're not connected to the ultimate, the infinite, and the eternal, we'll never be happy. Well, all the other things are mere chimeras. They're nothing more than figments of the imagination. They're nothing more than sophistries. And these things 
at the end of the day, when they disappoint, disappoint after we throw our whole selves into it, throw all of our time, our being, our energy, and our friendships into getting false happinesses, and they once again disappoint, what happens? I've done everything right. What's the That's point right. of life? Of yeah. course the suicide rates are going to go up 200%. Of course depression and anxiety is going to go up 200%. What, right. what are we thinking about what here? You just we run out of stop. time, and it's just too late. <laughs> but in the spiritual life, you always have more time, hopefully. But for us, we're out of time. So, Father, <laughs> yeah. if you'll give us a, uh, your blessing, that'd be great. Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord give you a full portion of his Holy Spirit filled with his wisdom to help this culture, to help the people around you, to understand that true happiness that comes only from him, the perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home that comes only from him, the infinite, eternal, perfectly loving, perfectly true, and good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week, and we hope to see all of you next week. And don't forget, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are naturally available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. And next week's show, we'll continue with Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, just scratching the surface. Bookmark this weekend. We've got Simple Steps to a Stronger Marriage by Dr. Very Simple Ray Garendi. He's always fun. It's a great book. Check out the interview and also this weekend National Franciscan Pilgrimage Mass from the International Eucharistic and Marian Shrine in Knock County, Mayo. Okay, on EWTN, Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time. I'm Doug Keck. This has been, of course, Father Spitzer's Universe. We shall see you next time. Thanks. Thank you.